we have this in the bulletin that uh, we're beginning to work up our um, child care ministry, especially uh, during the time that we have our uh, message and sermon. So it's available to you if you want to use it. We have our nursery back there, and, and Liz Hurtado will be back there, and she'll be watching the children, but that's entirely up to you. Uh, we also have this room over here, which is a cry room for those who feel like they need it. So those things are mentioned in the bulletin, but we just want to let you know that that's for you if you desire to use it. Uh, but we're also a church that wants to be constantly, entirely family-friendly. We love having the children with us throughout the entire service. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to, uh, 22 to 31 is where we're going to be reading this morning. And then my wife also reminded me of something to share with the church family it, for an ongoing prayer. Um, our brother Bob Neese, many of you know him. Uh, we were with him on Wednesday and with Sherry. Good news with respect to um, his cancer, which is uh, that which is going to eventually kill him. But uh, the situation is such that they now have a new technique to actually locate the tumor. Up to this point, the tumor has been impossible to locate, but a, a recent... Um, diagnostic procedure is such that they're hoping to be able to locate that tumor and then prior success is this that when they locate the tumor when they extract the tumor they're able to eradicate the cancer that's the hope that's the prayer and that's what they're hoping to have uh, even before the end of the year to be able to go through that so we can be praying for him now scripture passage mark chapter 14 i'll be reading from the english uh, standard version translation I did mention it, Liz. Yes, good, good. All right. So Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 31 is where we are, reading from the English Standard Version translation. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Father, grant us the ability to understand how this passage in Mark's gospel would speak to us, how this story is central to the meaning of life and ministry of your Son, our Savior, how these words here have great significance for us, for the church, and how our paying due attention to them listening to your words, uh, hearing them, Father, as they're expounded this morning, would bring us grace. We pray that we may 
because we have sat hearing your word and this morning participating at your table that we might be more edified, strengthened, filled with your grace to live lives that would be pleasing to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Now, the story where we are in the Gospel of Mark, once again, it's the last week of the life of Christ. Uh, We've talked about how uh, just this last week, we talked about how this is Thursday of that week. The next day, Jesus is going to die. And where we are here is that the Passover meal is concluded by Jesus in this fashion. So when it mentions that after the supper, he does these things, it's talking about after the Passover supper that they have just celebrated. So the setting is Jesus. He's with his disciples. The very last thing that Jesus had spoken to them before he moves into what we call the establishment of the Lord's Supper was that Jesus had become very sorrowful because he had announced to all of the disciples together, all 12 of them together, that one of them was going to betray him. So then after that point, Mark picks up the narrative, talking about what Jesus does here and setting up and establishing this new meal, this ceremonial meal, the Lord's Supper. Now, what's important for us to recognize in terms of the narrative, to to be clear about this, is that at this point, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the traitor, is not present with the disciples. Now, you don't get that directly revealed in the text, uh, but it becomes very clear, clear when you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together that at this particular time, Judas isn't there because Judas has left the upper room. Judas has gone to the chief priest and Judas is now with them as they're gathering their mob crowd to come and to arrest Jesus. That's where Judas is at this particular point. So the rest of things that happened in the upper room that night, Judas the betrayer is himself not present. So that's important. Because what Mark and Matthew especially record is that Jesus establishes this supper this covenant meal with his 11 disciples, those who are truly his disciples. But there's a whole lot in the institution of the supper that we don't find Mark recording. Uh, But we need to ask ourselves this question. Why would Mark have to? Mark is telling the story of the gospel. Why would he have to say everything that actually took place when Jesus established the Lord's Supper. Well, if you think about it, his original audience are Christians. Uh, The people he's writing to are the believers at the Church of Rome. Uh, Those believers were, in fact, extremely familiar with what took place in terms of the establishment of the Lord's Supper because every single church that the apostles ever established, every church that was established in the New Testament times, were established on the two ordinances that Jesus instituted, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so they would have themselves practiced the Lord's Supper from the very beginning of time when the church at Rome was established, and we're not sure when that was. Uh, Clearly, by the early 40s, there was a group of practicing Christian believers there, Jews and Gentiles. And they would have 
practiced the Lord's Supper from the very beginning of the time that that church got established. So the angle we're going to take in looking at this passage, since Mark doesn't give us everything that is involved in the Lord's Supper, is basically this. We're going to ask ourselves one question, one question about Mark's audience. And that question is this. What did the Christians in the city of Rome know about the Lord's Supper? And we're going to answer that. We're going to say that there are three things that they knew. They knew the practice of the Lord's Supper. They knew the meaning of the Lord's Supper, most significantly. They knew the failings of those first disciples who partook of the Lord's Supper with Jesus. Now, that's what this passage shows us. Mark's audience understood the practice of the Lord's Supper. They understood the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But they also read here about the failings of the disciples who were there with Jesus when he first established the Lord's Supper. Now, the value for that, for us, it gives us an opportunity to review what we know about the Lord's Supper and how we should come to the table and properly observe it. So we begin with the practice. So Mark's audience, the church there in Rome, like all the New Testament churches who have been practicing uh, the Lord's Supper, we don't know how often, but we know that it was often. Some want to say every week they practice it. Every worship service they practice it. We don't have perfect evidence of that, but we do know that the practice was very, very regular, on a very regular basis. Now, that really set it apart from the Passover. Uh, the Passover was a once-a-year kind of celebration. This really shows the great distinction and departure uh, between the Jewish rituals and the New Covenant, because the Christians never practiced Passover from this point on. Passover is not practiced by any, any evidence that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians ever practiced the Passover from this point on. From this point on, what was practiced was the Lord's Supper done on a very regular basis because it was, in fact, the fulfillment of the Passover. What Jesus did as the Lamb of God fulfilled what the Passover Lamb itself was intended to speak of. Now... Mark's audience then would have had a fairly full understanding, full statement of what the Lord's Supper was all about, even apart from what Mark puts here. So the question is, where do we find this though in the New Testament? Where do we find the best full statement of the Lord's Supper? Well, the answer then is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's the Apostle Paul who gives us the, the one passage that has the most complete presentation. And so that's what I want us to turn to. And so I'm going to read that to you. Because it's what we read every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it's that fullest statement. And we need to remember that Paul tells us that he got this directly from Jesus himself. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 32. And pardon me that I'm not reading this from the ESV. I'm actually reading it from the NIV. But the NIV is the passage that I practically memorized. And if I try to read it from the ESV, I'm, I'm bound to misstate things. So this is the NIV version of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verses 23 
on the way, all the way into verse 32. So Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So in light of this passage, we can say that with respect to the practice of the Lord's Supper, there are several main parts. Now, first of these would be thanksgiving. Now, the Jews always gave thanks before every single meal that they ever, ever ate. And everything indicates that Jesus himself did likewise and set that example for his own believers. And so we also see that Jesus gives thanks at this point before he establishes the beginning of the Lord's Supper. Paul notes that in verse 24, that thanks is given before the first element of the bread is presented. Standard custom. Uh, then the elements in terms of the practice. Uh, the Lord's Supper has always been celebrated with both the bread and the cup. In the ancient New Testament church of Jesus' day and, and shortly afterwards, they would routinely use uh, one loaf of bread, which was then ceremonially broken, and then pass around to those who were participating. And in a similar fashion, there was one common cup of wine, which was blessed with prayer, and then presented to everyone, passed around to all of those who were worshiping, for all to sip of that one cup. So those are the basic elements, bread and the wine. And then the words of institution. Uh, what Paul says here is what the, the, the pastors or leaders of the Lord's Supper would routinely do with respect to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the one who would officiate in the name of Christ would repeat the words spoken by Jesus. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the bread would be broken and passed. And when the cup was presented... After the eating of the bread, likewise, the words of Jesus would be repeated. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, here, Mark and Matthew also quote Jesus as saying, which is poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Those words would also be uttered, and then the cup would be passed. Now, a fourth part. Uh, Paul doesn't mention, but we see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark, and that is at the conclusion, and this was typical in every Jewish worship service, at the conclusion of every service, there would be the singing of a hymn. 
And so in Mark's gospel, we read that before they left the upper room, before they went to the Mount of Olives, the last thing they did was they concluded the service with the singing of a hymn. So we assume that this was a custom that was done in the early church. We know that later on we have all the evidence that singing was part of the communion service. Uh, So singing hymns or a hymn to conclude services has been part of what Christians have done all throughout the ages. Now what I want to point out here is that when you look at it this way, you see a simplicity of practice. And in the history of the church, one of the great errors has been to confound the simplicity of the practice by multiplying ceremonies, uh, by multiplying different ways in which the Lord's table is observed, by adding things that are not in the original uh, approach to the way this is all done, uh, all in some kind of uh, approach designed by those who endorse such practices as to, quote, make the table more special, make the table more holy. Uh, give the table a greater sense of reverence in the eyes of the people. And I would say this, as biblical Christians, don't ever think you can improve upon the Word and the Spirit. Never think that you can do something that's going to make something more holy than what the Word and the Spirit already have committed to doing. Uh, It's a dangerous thing to add to the Word of God It's a dangerous thing to add to the practices we find in Scripture. It's a dangerous thing to depart from the simplicity of the table that we find expressed to us in the New Testament documents. The reverence that we have for the table of the Lord is a reverence that's generated by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God in the hearts and minds of those believers who come to it in the simplicity of the way that it is practiced. Now, the meaning. The meaning of the Lord's Supper is also something which Mark's audience would have clearly understood. To begin with, the meaning is found in how the table is designated. Paul refers to the supper as the Lord's Supper. He does that in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, In the previous chapter, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is also talking about um, the Lord's Supper, and he calls it the Lord's Table or the Table of the Lord. So those are the two most common New Testament designations. It's the Lord's table. It's the table of the Lord. And therefore, the implication is it's never the table of any particular church. No Christian communion, no particular church owns this table. It's a table that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ And therefore, it belongs to all those who are truly followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we must be careful of. The key concern with respect to the table of the Lord and the Lord's table is that it is not controlled or regulated by anything other than the Word of God and those faithful churches and ministers who will conduct it according to the Word of God. It is the table of the Lord, not the table of this particular church, not the table of any church ever. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this table is also known by two other common terms that we find the Apostle Paul mentioning, uh, the Eucharist and the communion. 
Now, the word Eucharist is an English version of the word thanksgiving. And because this table is connected to the thanksgiving, which is given at the beginning of the, of the ritual and the ceremony, uh, the table became known as the giving of thanks. We find this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the blood of Christ. So that term thanksgiving there, uh, the Greek version, came over eventually into English in the tradition of the church to call the Lord's table the Eucharist, meaning the thanksgiving, the giving of thanks, participation with the body and blood of Christ in the spirit of thanksgiving for God's grace. It's also called communion because in the same passage where I read is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. The word participation there is from the Greek word koinonia. And the word koinonia is the word that means fellowship. It means communion. It means participation. So that particular word became associated then with the celebration of the Lord's table. Because when you sit at this table you are having communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are having table fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are having a participation in what the bread and the cup represent. That's the point. So that helps us to understand also the meaning of the Lord's Supper. But then even more to the point, the symbolism of the elements themselves. Uh, we know it's a symbolic meal. Um, sometimes you've come to church and you didn't have much of a breakfast. And you were hungry. And you knew you were going to be celebrating communion. And you knew that you'd still be hungry after communion, celebrating communion. Because it is a symbolic meal. Uh, the Passover was celebrated first. The Passover was a full and nourishing meal. And when the disciples then participated in this with Jesus, they were eating in a token and representative fashion. So they had a bit of bread and they had a sip of wine. But in just that symbolic action, they were participating in what Jesus intended for this meal to represent. So the elements themselves, the bread, the cup, they symbolize what Jesus did. They are identified, as Jesus specifically says, this is my body, speaking of the bread. And then this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. Specifically, the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Christ. The bread broken represents the kind of breaking that Jesus experienced on the cross. We know from Scripture, not a single bone of Jesus' body was broken. So the idea of breaking the bread metaphorically speaks of the sacrifice that Jesus did upon the cross. His body was bruised and beaten. No bone was broken, but his life was broken by virtue of his death upon the cross. And in, in his dying, he shed his blood, which is what the cup represents. 
We know that Scripture declares to us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And therefore, it was necessary that our Savior and Redeemer, as the Lamb of God, die a bloody death. Not just that he died, but that he died in such a way that his blood was shed to demonstrate that he was truly a sacrifice on our behalf. But Jesus also says this. This cup is the new covenant into my blood. Christ was pointing back to Jeremiah 31, where a prophecy had been given that God was going to establish his new covenant. He was also making reference to the fact that the old covenant at the time of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 24, in the ritual there, that when the covenant was being enacted with the people of Israel, blood was shed and blood was sprinkled to represent that that covenant was inaugurated with, in fact, the sacrifice of blood. And Jesus is, is demonstrating the fact that even the new covenant is inaugurated with the sacrifice of his own blood. All the blood shed under the old covenant, all the blood shed in the Old Testament times, prefigured, look forward to the blood that Jesus himself would shed. One promised and looked forward. And in Jesus, we have that promise fulfilled and accomplished. This night... Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. This night, Jesus brings the old covenant to an end. This night, Jesus prepares his disciples to understand he is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Paul also says, recording what Jesus says, twice, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when believers celebrate the Lord's Supper, it means that they're celebrating that which is a preaching and proclamation of the gospel. The table preaches the death of Christ until Jesus Christ returns. So that's why the, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is, is a visible presenting and proclaiming the saving death of Christ. And that reminds us that Jesus is the center of the Supper. Jesus is the center of God's covenant with his people. Jesus is the center of our faith. Do we live this way? Do you live with Jesus being the center of your faith? Every Sunday morning, my youngest son calls me, prays with me, prays for us, prays for my preaching. He, he shared a prayer request with me this morning. He said, Dad... I need you to pray for me. This past week was horrible. He says, I'm very, very stressed about a number of things. He's in elder training, concerned about that. 
He's applying for PhD work. He's concerned about that. He's involved in writing some research stuff to be approved for PhD. All sorts of stuff. Stress, stress, stress. As well as his job and being the dad of three girls. <laughs> and so last night he said, Beth, his wife, prayed for him. He said, I'm not taking any of these stresses to the Lord in prayer. He said, I've been going through this entire week and I have not been taking any of these stresses to the Lord in prayer. And what I said to him was this. How sad it is that we who know that everything in our lives is all of Jesus, how sad it is that we who know that everything must be about Jesus. How sad it is that we know we can't do anything right apart from Jesus. Can go through a week and not be given everything over to Jesus as those things happen. He said, Dad, you're right. I said, I know. I said, it's sad that we who believe so much in grace fail to live like those who believe so much in grace. I said, I'll be praying for you. Now, he had no idea that I was going to undress him in front of you and share that with you. <laughs> so don't tell him. But it's the case. It's true. We, we need to understand that the table tells us that Jesus is the center of our faith. And it's not just on Sundays. It's not just once in a while. Every single thing we need to, as the hymn says, take it to the Lord in prayer. Preach Christ to yourself every time a crisis comes. Lean into Jesus in all of the things that you struggle with. You have no resources in yourself that can handle the things that life presents. The table reminds us we need Jesus. The fourth aspect of the meaning of the table is really found in this part between verses 27 to 32 where, where Paul points out self-examination, faith, and judgment. I'm going to read those verses again. Paul says in verses 27 to 32, Whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now what Paul is saying here uh, in, in the Reformed tradition, our tradition, we call this fencing or guarding the table. But really, it's not so much that we're guarding the table, but we're really guarding those who would participate at the table. Because Paul is warning here about coming to the table in a manner that's not worthy. Which is to say, Paul is saying it's possible for people to come to the table, but to actually do so in a way that sins against the body and the blood of Christ. That's why Paul calls for self-examination before coming to the table. 
Uh, anyone who comes to the table must be able to recognize or to discern or to understand that the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And that really means saving faith. Do you have the faith, the trust, to see that the supper represents what Jesus did on the cross? Do you have a believing faith that his death was for you? Do you trust that what he has done for you on the cross is fully sufficient to cancel and pardon all of your sins? And have you trusted him for his great work on your behalf? And so if a person does not have that faith, that person ought not to participate in the body and the blood of Christ. So that means Paul is emphasizing the table, the Lord's table, is the table for believers. It's for those who truly trusted in Jesus and in Jesus alone for their salvation. Now, the final main point out of the passage in Mark should not be missed. Mark's first audience knew about the failings of the disciples who were the recipients when Jesus established the new covenant in his blood. You notice what you read there. Jesus says, you're going to fall away. The shepherd is going to be struck. The sheep are going to be scattered. And, and Peter protests, you know, hey, everyone else can fall away, but I wouldn't. I won't. I, I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And, and he says he isn't. And all the other disciples, remember, Judas isn't among them. All the other disciples say, no, no, we won't. We won't. With complete and certain foreknowledge of what was going to happen, Jesus established the table with those who within a short period of time were going to disown him. Fall away from him. Desert him. Abandon him in his time of greatest need. Now, why is that a message of grace to us? Because it tells us that the new covenant that Jesus has established with those who believe in him isn't based on your faith and my faith and our ability to keep covenant with him. It is all of Jesus. Because grace is all of Jesus. The Lord came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus came to die for those who were sinners. Jesus came for the weak, the lowly, the outcasts. Jesus came for those who really know they cannot save themselves. And that's the testimony of the table. Jesus established his new covenant with those he loved the most who were going to abandon him in a short time when their own lives were in danger. And so what does that mean to us? The only way to the table is through understanding 
that we are jars of clay, that we are weak, that we have faith smaller than the grain of a mustard seed, but we have faith in a great God and in a great Savior, one who has established the covenant in his own blood, who saves to the uttermost all those who place their faith and trust in him. That's the encouragement. And we need that encouragement. How many times during the week do you look in the mirror and pat yourself on the back and say, I am just the most incredible Christian I have ever met? We don't. We go through the week and we think, have I read my Bible? Have I prayed? Have I thought about Jesus? Which Pandora station was I listening to most this week? Was it Bebo Norman or Casting Crowns or Or was it the 70s hit? I I love the 70s station. You can have a balance. But the question is, were you thinking about Jesus? Were you thinking about him? Were our minds set on things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father? And we look and we say, Lord, how often I so easily drift away from you. In the busyness of life, in the affairs of the week, how often I drift from you. So the table, the important message in this part of Mark's gospel is that Jesus established the table with those who were weak and failing in their loyalty and faithfulness with him. And so that's why I say to you this morning, the invitation of Jesus is this. Come unto me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The sweet words of Christ, inviting us to fellowship with him around his table, recognizing the great truths of the gospel which the bread and the wine represent, not because we are such strong Christians, but because we have faith in an almighty, all-powerful, perfectly strong Savior. We're reminded that the table is all about grace. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table this morning, the table of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with Jesus present with us through the presence of your Holy Spirit, enable us then, we pray, to come in all of our weakness with true faith in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.